Welcome to Thinking Deeply About Primary Education, the podcast that makes time and space to really think about pedagogy, teaching and learning, professional development, anything of interest to time poor but enthusiasm rich teachers. This week, I'm joined by Christopher Such. Hello again. And together, we'll try and answer the question How do you solve a problem like reading comprehension? But first, Chris, what's you reading for? This week, I've been reading a book called Hands On, Minds On by Claire Cameron. It's a really interesting book about um, early development of executive functions, spatial awareness, and uh, motor skills in young children. The reason I've been looking into this is that a lot of the time recently when I've been talking about mathematics and I've been talking about mastery and other subjects, one of the, one of the areas that I keep coming back to are the aspects of um, learning, sometimes known as the prime areas when we're talking about EYFS stuff, that seem to underpin all of the learning that comes later. Um, I'd highly recommend this book to anyone interested in the subject or anyone that just wants to have a shared language for talking about these um, underlying skills that goes a bit beyond um, the prime areas um, of the early learning goals. But yeah, it's a fantastic book. I recommend it. Uh, and you, Kieran, what are you reading for? So I've got a paper. Um, haven't quite finished it yet, but I think it's one that people will find interesting. It's by Gert Biesta. It, I think it's called why what works might not work or something along those lines you know and it, lo- it looks at them um, sort of the, the the ontology and the epistemology of them um, of the working out what works and um, sort of approach to sort of teaching and learning really and um, and i think the reason i started reading it is because you know i always say we should seek out sort of things that we don't necessarily agree with just to see what the nuance in the argument is. And, you know, I'll put the actual title in the show notes, but um, but the title is something that uh, sort of makes me think, or oh, I, I don't agree with this at all. You know, I've, you know, this is, this is really challenging my view of, of what education is. Um, but to be fair, I think I'm six of 13 pages in and there is a whole lot more nuance. Um, and I think it's, it's almost more about being cautious about our expectations. And, and some of the examples, you know, are very, very polar extremes, you know, and, you know, the fact that the, the randomized control test could somehow magically be used to give us definite answers in education. And, and no one actually talks like that, but it's, it's, it's been an interesting read so far. And I think it might be one that, uh, that listeners enjoy sort of diving into, you know, even if it is just a challenge sort of conceptions that have developed over the last, you know, 10 or so years. Yeah, sounds great. I mean, along those lines, I recently listened to, it just reminded me, recently listened to Christian Bockhove, I hope I pronounced that right, his uh, interview on the Mr. Barton Maths podcast. And yeah, I, he's fantastic at challenging some of these embedded ideas, ideas that I would be the first to admit that I, you know, think have a great deal of value. But yeah, you have to seek out these people. Otherwise, particularly when they're as thoughtful and as nuanced as um, Christian Bokov is, because otherwise, how are you going to really know what you know? How are you going to have any confidence in the things that you think? So I would highly recommend that as well. No, it's not a book, but chucking that out there as well. Nice. So then I think we're ready to get down to the nitty gritty of this, um, of this episode. 
And I suppose listeners won't be surprised that I'm probably going to take a, a lot more of a back seat because with the, um, with the theme being reading comprehension and you being somewhat of an expert in this field, me not having taught reading in five, six years, you know, I'll hold my hands up and say that my only experience of teaching reading is the two years that I spent learning to read in another language, you know, over the last um, 24 months. So yeah, I'll be throwing the questions your way, Chris, and I'll, I'll try and throw, um, you know, some opinions. But I think it's it's probably worth the disclaimer that it's entirely opinion based on, on my end. Um, and I think yeah, I think the first thing we got to do, as always, is define reading comprehension. So what what is reading comprehension, Chris? Before I do that, I'm just going to quickly make it clear to those that this isn't a video episode. There's no video involved. It's just a podcast. I, Kira will notice that I physically flinched at the word expert there. There's no word that seems to put people off listening to someone's opinions in education than hearing someone else say that they're, a, 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 they're an expert or be told that they're an expert. So no, I'm not accepting that description. That aside, let's move on. Um, so what is reading comprehension? Well, the first thing to say is it's the ultimate goal of all reading. So it goes without saying that when we teach children phonics and when we're looking to develop fluency and all of that other stuff that is required to develop reading comprehension, that the goal at the end of it all is this idea of reading comprehension. It's a really tricky thing to define. Frankly, there are lots of different um, definitions out there. My favourite that is kind of a, a hodgepodge of lots of different ones, really, is that I would describe it as the process of extracting meaning from written language through the integration of knowledge related to words, texts and the wider world. But in short, it really is, look at text, do I know what's going on? In order to kind of unpack that a little bit, it's worth talking briefly about different models for reading. Well, one specific model for reading that has been... Uh, particularly pertinent over the last few, well, since 1986, actually, since Goffman Tunma's paper on the simple view of reading. Um, and that is the paper, the simple view of reading and the model of reading that um, has that name. Effectively, it breaks reading into two components, or it breaks reading comprehension, I should say, or the, the um, what is required for reading comprehension into two components, one of which is decoding, which we're not going to talk about a huge amount today, though from this point on, I hope it goes without saying that the ability to decode fluently is an essential aspect of reading comprehension. But it also looks at another aspect of that, which is listening or language comprehension. Now, the best way to describe this is to, um, to use an example. Uh, John Milton, the uh, poet, famously lost his sight um, as, as later into adulthood, but still wanted to continue his studies. And one of the things that he was able to do was he asked his daughters to read um, Greek to him. They, they read Greek texts to him. Now, the interesting thing was that his daughters were able to decode Greek. They knew what the, you know, the symbols represented in terms of sounds, but they weren't able to have, they had no clue what the actual words meant. Whereas on the other side of the equation, you had uh, John Milton, who, while he was blind and thus completely unable to decode, because this is before the days of Braille, was able to do the other half. 
So the two aspects that go together to make reading comprehension in this case are held by the two different people. The one of his daughters who is doing the decoding half and him as he hears the words doing the language comprehension half. So you end up with a person all together as such who is able to comprehend what they read, but only because those two components there are um, interacting. Now, this is an extreme case where two different people are doing uh, two different jobs, but it kind of shows us what is meant by the simple view of reading and by the separation of these two ideas, um, this uh, language comprehension and um, this other half decoding. It's also worth very briefly mentioning that this language comprehension isn't really, it's actually a tiny bit more complicated than that. In that the way I've described it makes it sound just like listening comprehension, the kind of comprehension that you can do, um, I hope, while hearing me speak. But it's actually a little bit more than that because there are things like um, the, the, the structures of the are in a, a given text. So for example, subheadings might be something that goes a bit beyond listening comprehension, but isn't really decoding either. And yet it can contribute to meaning. So language comprehension, this other half that goes along with decoding, um, actually goes a little bit beyond the um, analogy with John Milton that I just described, but I still hope it's useful. In, in summary, reading comprehension can be thought of as the product of language comprehension and of decoding, it is the process through that of extracting meaning from written language through the integration of knowledge related to words, texts, and the wider world. At least that's my definition. Am I right in thinking the margins are pretty small too, Chris, when it comes to that process happening? You know, and like I said, think about my experience. All I need to do is not know two or three words, and I can get a whole different sense from a paragraph than. Uh, and if I know them all, you know, what, what's going on there? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and it's something we're going to be talking about a little bit later is because of the way that um, vocabulary and background knowledge in, and all of the other aspects that lead to reading comprehension, because of the ways that they interact, a very small um, weakness in what you're understanding can make the whole thing fall apart. Let's say we were talking about a, um, a football match. And we said the final whistle went and the player and the, both groups of players fell to their knees, one in joy and one in despair. If you didn't know the phrase final whistle and didn't know that related to a sporting contest, that whole thing falls apart, even though you understand the syntax and um, the vocabulary and most of the background knowledge related to the rest of it. So, um, yeah, the, it, it's there aren't great margins for error, particularly in a, in a relatively short bit of text. When you get something a lot longer, it can be the case that we can begin to derive meaning, even if maybe we don't know five or 10% of the words. It's, there, there are rough estimates and it depends on the type of text. Um, it's easier generally to work out the gist of a story than it is, for example, an information text. Um, but it's worth noting that it's also it isn't necessarily even then on or off. In fact, quite the opposite. A, a person can have had, uh, can have taken some meaning from a text while someone else can have taken a very precise meaning um, and someone else can have taken exactly what the author intended. Um, 
so yeah it's 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 more of a spectrum necessarily than an, than an on or off thing though sometimes people will comp have completely missed the point of um a bit of text yeah i reckon my what you're reading for there are definitely paragraphs in there that um i had to read several times to really get the gist of yeah and so and as you're saying i'm thinking yeah it's it's a it's a gut feeling yeah i pretty much got this i can move on to the next bit you know both when i'm reading academically and when i'm reading in spanish and it's sort of like yeah I, i'm pretty sure you know it's a continuum of uh, <laughs> of internal satisfaction and i love what you've mentioned there about the idea of you having to reread i mean part of being a fluent reader and part of having certain comprehension strategies that we'll talk about later embedded is the fact that you are obviously setting for yourself a particular standard of, of coherence. You're reading that text and you're going, it needs to make this much sense to me, or I go back and read again, uh, or I, you know, maybe go online and check out the definition of particular words. You're setting a particular standard of coherence, perhaps automatically unconsciously you're doing this and without realizing it you are as a fluent reader setting different standards of coherence for different texts it might be the case that if you're reading you know a trashy crime novel in bed late at night you might be letting certain stuff go in a way that you're not when you're reading an academic paper where you really want to grasp everything so i think that's a pretty clear and um, you know sort of quick journey through what reading comprehension is. What different aspects of comprehension are there? And to what extent are they discrete? Thinking about what I said a moment ago, it's worth noting that any definition really of reading comprehension isn't complete until we think about some or all of the aspects that contribute to it. So I talked about decoding, and I'm going to leave that for the rest of today, because that's uh, several podcasts on its own. But within that other side, that language comprehension that contributes to reading comprehension, there are different aspects that um, interact. So there are things like vocabulary. There is, uh, so the, the, the depth and breadth of your vocabulary that is um, implicated in different aspects of reading comprehension. There is uh, background knowledge, which is effectively the knowledge of the world that you bring to a given text. Um, there is also certain uh, strategies, like we've already discussed the idea of comprehension monitoring and setting a standard for coherence. Um, there's your knowledge of texts or in particular text structures. There are knowledge, there's knowledge of syntax and how particular sentence structures work. And there are other bits and pieces, but that gives you a flavor of the the key parts. What's really interesting here is that um, the most common metaphor that I see used, um, and understandably so, because it's a brilliant visual metaphor um, to describe reading comprehension, is um, of a rope. The idea of all of these different aspects being like the strands that intertwine to go together to make a rope. And I'm not disagreeing with that. I think it is a, it is a great visual metaphor. Something that I perhaps add to that is that the more I read about comprehension and the more that I teach it and the more that I learn about it, I think a, an additional metaphor is the idea of um, notes in a chord in a sense that we can't, if, if I were to say, you know, I play a A minor or whatever it might be, if I said, oh, you can hear the four notes that I'm playing on the piano as I, as I do that, it wouldn't really make sense for me to say, oh, okay, 
which which of those four is the A minor? Which one's doing the job of creating A minor, or in this case, creating reading comprehension? It's like, well, actually, it's the interaction between them. They are different based on how they interact with the other ones. So, um, for example, if I give you a very basic sentence, if I give you a sentence like, uh, Jacob looked at his CV and grimaced, it was hopeless. Now, there's a lot going on in that sentence in order to comprehend it. But the thing I want to point out in particular is the fact that what the word it means here, because it would be dead easy to think that it is referring to his CV, when in fact it's actually relating to the situation on the whole. Well, how do we know it's relating to the situation on the whole? Well, firstly, it's something to do there's a, the, with the brevity of that sentence. If I, it, it's just saying it was hopeless, just kind of suggests that we're talking about a situation rather than a specific um, concrete thing. The fact that he grimaced suggests that something's wrong. And so then when we say that something's hopeless, we're more likely to be talking about the situation as a whole. In short, the vocabulary, um, our understanding of the syntax, it all kind of begins to fit together to give us this sense that probably, though not certainly, the author is talking about the situation here rather than um, the CV itself. And there are lots of circumstances, and I'll talk about a few more of these later, where our background knowledge changes what we're thinking about. Another great example of this would be um, in a sentence where I was talking about um, falcons. Well, the rest of that sentence and the background knowledge that I described there is going to let me know whether I'm talking about the uh, bird of prey or whether I'm talking about the, I think it's Newcastle rugby team. You know, it's so how you, and this is all happening quickly and in the moment, but in each case, one is feeding into the other. The other part of your question was, well, okay, to what extent are these discrete? And this is also where I go back to my kind of piano chords analogy in that really we can only see them as a whole thing in that it's that there's so much overlap between them. So for example, if I were to say, um, tell me um, about your vocabulary depth relating to the word um, oak, you know, and you might talk about, um, you know, English forests and all sorts of things relating to nature. And you might talk about the idea of something being sturdy and metaphors to do with something being robust, yada, yada, yada. Now, if I were to say, okay, now what is your background knowledge relating to oak trees? Well, where does one begin and one end? And yet we do often talk about, well, these two different things, you know, our vocabulary, but also our background knowledge. And there are certain circumstances when we're reading when it's really clear that, oh, yeah, this is definitely their vocabulary. And this is definitely background knowledge because we haven't even used any words to describe precisely this thing. We just know it needs to come in because of some inference we've made. But actually, in a lot of cases, is it vocabulary we're talking about? Is it background knowledge? I saw this lovely, um, I think it was in the book, um, Words in the Mind by Gene Aitchison. There's this picture of a, a town where you can see uh, that they're almost like tunnels underneath where it all links together. And it shows that actually, and almost at the roots of what's going on, vocabulary and background knowledge are sort of one and the same and drawing a line, an arbitrary line between them is just, it's, it, it's convenient but it's not necessarily uh, the greatest representation of what's really going on. So in short, 
Um, the aspects of reading comprehension are things like vocabulary, background knowledge, knowledge of text structure, um, comprehension strategies that we learn quickly and then apply to different texts. Um, and it's also important to know that these aspects, they interact, but also they kind of blur at the edges as well. Sort of, it brings into question some of the text choices for SATS papers I've experienced in the past. Um, the one that comes to mind immediately is the uh, it was a lot it was it was the old Sats papers, cave diving, spelunking, something along those lines, and I hadn't even been spelunking at that point. Never mind the kids in my class. I was like, <laughs> what is this, you know? And then years later to find out that um, that background knowledge had such an important role to play. I was like, oh my goodness. Yeah, I, I remember um, someone mentioning online that they uh, their school had had beekeepers into school um a week or a couple of weeks before the sats and then up came questions on um on bees and their, their, their kids just absolutely went to town on that sats paper scored brilliantly it, you're absolutely right it calls into question the validity of um assessments relating to reading comprehension I'm of the opinion, I'd almost go as far as to say that if you know the extent to which a child is a fluent reader from hearing them read and you know, have, have a good idea of the extent to which they have knowledge of the world and how familiar they are with particular text structures, they're fairly happy working their way around a narr narrative or an information text, they know the differences between the two, what to expect from the two that I would see that as a more um, valid assessment of reading as a thing or reading comprehension as a thing than comprehension tests, which are so dependent on the knowledge, as it were, that is contained within that test. Um, before before the, the sort of the January, February lockdown, I decided to take my Spanish to the next level and do, you know, the deli? Um, which is almost like your Central European framework. And um, I thought, right, okay, I'm going to spend a year. I'm going to get them. Um, I get to C2. I'm going to really nail this language. Um, and the first thing that the tutor did was give me a Spanish paper that they thought was going to be difficult on cognitive psychology. And obviously, there are, are <laughs> there are lots of, you know, like it, it, it's not difficult to work out what cognitiva <laughs> means. And, and having reasonable background knowledge in the, you know, they were all like, wow, this is amazing. And then the next paper was on, um, oh, the, those little grub insects that then sort of eat at your furniture and stuff. Um, and it was a totally different story, <laughs> you know, and it was night and day thinking, you know, I know a lot about this and I can use that to my advantage. I don't know anything about this. I'm a big trouble. I'm going to work twice as hard to, to get through this lesson. <laughs> and in your book, you mentioned the situation model. What is for anyone listening who's not sure, not sure, what is the situation model and why is it worth knowing about? I would say the best analogy I can give to demonstrate what a situation model is, is to talk through a little bit of my teaching career or a, a particular experience from my teaching career. About four years ago, I turned up at an assembly to find that it was an NQT's turn to 
do an assembly not that that's necessarily ideal but that's what it was and they'd completely forgotten and they had this look in their eyes that said i can't improvise an assembly or nor and, and who could in their first year of teaching so I, i'd love to say that i like boldly and you know nobly stepped up but i there was no one else there so that was literally the only reason why i was like okay it's gotta be me um, I've been working with a group of kids for a couple of years or two different groups of kids, I should say, of roughly a similar level. I read the Iron Man to each class. So I, it was kind of familiar to me. And I thought, you know what, if I've got to do an assembly off the cuff and I've got 20 minutes, I reckon I could do a half decent rendition of the Iron Man. And I still think I could. I reckon I could do a 15, 20 minute version of the Iron Man right now. Now, the interesting point is that if you said to me, okay, tell me a single whole sentence from that book or even name specifically i think the space angel bat dragon thing that comes towards the end i i i, I wouldn't be able to you know i can't I, I haven't got in my memory a particular um sentence at all that said what i do have is a situation model or what is described in the research literature as a as a situation model in that I have, for want of a better phrase, constructed, put together uh, the gist of the story, including characters, certain situations, the basics of the plot, each of these being integrated. I mean, I'd say one of the best ways to think about situation models, and again, this is another analogy, this is not what goes on, just a metaphor, so don't tweet me about this, because <laughs> this is just my idea. But it, my way of thinking about it is if you imagine um, a like a spider diagram or your mind map, whatever you want to call it, with the, the words at the center and then the little branches that come off and then other words and then other things come off that. Imagine one of those for a character and another one of those for a for the plot and another one of those for the different settings that come up. But instead of these being discrete entities over time, as you read the story, you build up these spider diagrams and they begin to interact. And crucially, over time, a bit like the way that we forget phone numbers that we no longer need, we, we kind of remove parts of it. You know, So if, I, if you were to ask me the plot of The Great Gatsby, same as with The Iron Man, I'd be able to give you, you know, talk through the plot to an extent, but I, I probably couldn't name um, any particular sentences from it. Um, and it's the same thing because I've got this overall structure that I've put together. But crucially, as I was reading the story of The Great Gatsby, there will have been bits in there that I read at a time and thought were clever, thought were funny, liked, thought were relevant. And then over time realized that they weren't relevant or they weren't essential to my understanding. And this is what a situation model is all about. It is the construction of key ideas by bringing in bits of information from the text but crucially it's almost that we it's like we we prune that as well we integrate it and we prune it so we integrate these different bits to help out with our understanding so we end up with this one situ integrated situation model but we also prune the bits that we or we seem to prune the bits that we don't need those things that aren't obviously um, essential to the story. Now, in both cases, I've talked about narratives here, but obviously the same thing is true of information texts or biographies or whatever um, text type um, you would 
hope to deal with. So just very quickly, when I've had discussions about situation models online and people have said, well, why do we need the phrase situation model? Why do we just not say it's comprehension? I think that it's a useful idea for two key reasons. The first is that it implies something active. It suggests that you are actively building something, which at the very least is a valuable metaphor for children when they are learning to read. The idea that this reading isn't, while eventually it will feel unconscious what we're doing and it will just kind of happen, particularly with trickier texts, we really do need to feel like, oh, that's an interesting bit of information that changes what I thought about this. And it kind of, you are, it, there's an, it's an active process of almost like you're building something. And the second reason I think it's um, an important idea is this pruning idea, or I guess a better way to put it would be something like streamlining. The idea that over time your model gets more um, efficient and the bits that you require are all for, for, for understanding are all that remain. And, and I think when you talk about comprehension without this idea of a situation model, you don't end up necessarily with the idea of it being active and the idea of it being um, something that you streamline as, I don't think that it comes out that that's definitely part of the process. Yeah, I, I really like that model too. And um, I've got two almost parts of, uh, of a follow-up. Um, so when I look at a, an academic paper, and I recognize the font, I recognize the, the front page, because they're normally quite distinct. And I have a sense of what this is about. I suppose the first bit is, is that my situation model in, in, in play? And the second part is, if I've misunderstood the first time and I prune the wrong stuff, can my situation model have an inaccurate interpretation of what I've read? Oh yeah, I mean, an, a, a situation model, there is no implication of accuracy behind it. I mean, it, I think it's absolutely possible to have a completely um, inaccurate situation model. So for example, a child who had recently seen the film Iron Man might come to the book The Iron Man with a very different set of um, ideas. So when at the start of the story, The Iron Man falls off the cliff and crashes into bits, a kid might be going, well, this doesn't make any sense. Why is he not just flying because I know he can in his suit so it can immediately become quite confusing it's totally possible for a situation model to be wrong I think the first thing you asked there is really interesting it's something I'd never really considered which is the idea you know when we think of situation models I'm always thinking about the things that you bring to the text that are um, textual that are purely related to or, or uh, verbal only and yet, I know for a fact, thinking back to the Iron Man or the Great Gatsby, as soon as I think about that text, part of me is also thinking about the front cover that I'm most familiar with. It's thinking about um, certain images, particularly in the Iron Man. Um, and, and funnily enough, I'm actually, I actually think of two particular front covers and each of them has a different feel for me. There's this older one with a black, uh, black front cover where it's just the Iron Man's metallic face and I read that one or had that one read to me as a kid and that one is quite an when I think of that one I imagine the Iron Man as this intimidating dark story because it, it felt that way to me as a child and yet when I think of another front cover the, there's a white front cover quite stylized the one that I've always used when reading to um to children I've got a slightly different impression of it so I think yeah the idea of a situation model can this is completely speculative 
but I've, I don't have any, I would suggest that there's no reason why it shouldn't have components attached to it that aren't purely related to the words as such. And that could go kind of a bit beyond that in order to give you a slightly different interpretation. In fact, I'd be stunned if our emotions relating to a text, our, our, our perception of the aesthetics relating to a given text weren't in some way um, linked in and triggered when we think about the text itself. That's, that's really interesting. Not necessarily all good news, though, because whenever I write academic assignments, um, I will try and use that situation model at the very end. You know, I'll, I'll look at it and go, OK, that's what I remember. That's what I remember. But if I'm remembering the wrong stuff, you know, and I don't necessarily have time to <laughs> check, this could be this could be bad news. <laughs> um, no, I'm, I'm joking. So I think a lot of time in schools is dedicated to comprehension skills or strategies. What's the difference between comprehension skills and comprehension strategies? Because um, I think that's important to know if we're going to dedicate so much time to them. Yeah, I'll come back to the idea of the amount of time that should perhaps be dedicated to them. Um, there is a, a very important difference between skills and strategies, at least in the academic literature that I've seen on, on the two of them. They're very commonly written about. Comprehension skills or just skills generally are, are usually talked about as um, facilities that can be developed or faculties, I should say, that, sh that can be developed um, over time, almost on a, on, a, on a spectrum. So that over the space of weeks or months or years, you can get stronger and stronger and stronger at them. Um, and it's worth d devoting that time to them in order to um, slowly but surely incrementally get much stronger at them. A strategy, in at least this context, is something slightly different. It's a bit like the um, comprehension monitoring that I mentioned earlier, the idea of keeping track of whether it's making sense, whether a text is making sense and knowing that it's a good idea to go back and read again if it doesn't. That's a strategy. That's not something that um, builds up incrementally over time necessarily, or if it does, it's pretty rapid. It's more of a trick. It's an idea, it's something that you need to um, make children aware of rather than that you need to you need to make them aware of it and model it and develop the habit of it, I would say. And so there is still an element of time involved, but it's more about habit formation more than it is about this incremental building up of a, of a particular um, faculty. Um, now, which one should we teach? Well, I've those of the audience who have listened to my previous podcast um, with you on the subject of reading a few weeks back, um, gluttons for punishment, they must though they must be, they'll know that I don't necessarily consider comprehension skills to be a thing, or, or if they are a thing, they're not. Um, they can't be developed in the way that we would usually consider a skill to be developed. So I talked previously about the idea of inference, the idea that, you know, inference is a discrete thing doesn't make any sense to me um, because there are certain sentences, you know, you were talking about learning about um, cognitive psychology in a different language. There are certain sentences that you can 
make all of the inferences you need to because you have the background knowledge, because you know the, the words in question, etc. And then there are sentences that you have no chance with. And then there are people who would be vice versa, who wouldn't know anything about, about cognitive psychology and wouldn't make the appropriate inferences, but would make appropriate inferences in another situation, suggesting that inference itself isn't this generic skill. It is, and this is my favorite phrase relating to a lot of these supposed comprehension skills, is that inference is much more like an emergent property. It is what occurs through the interaction of your understanding of words, texts, um, the wider world, and of course, your ability to kind of read through the text relatively fluently so that, you know, you don't have to think about the decoding and you've got kind of the cognitive space to deal with it. So in short, things like predicting, summarizing, these are not discrete skills to be built up over time. Some of them are worthwhile strategies. So it, it can be sensible to say to children, you know, if you get to the end of a paragraph, it's worth maybe summarizing in your head what that paragraph was about. And once children have developed that habit, they've got it, it's theirs. That's all they really need to, to have in order to be able to do that, as long as they've got the requisite and um, vocabulary and background knowledge and this sort of thing. So should we dedicate time to having a lesson on inference and a lesson on vocabulary, as if every reading lesson isn't a lesson on vocabulary, of course it is. And should we have a lesson on inference on Monday and lesson on vocabulary on Tuesday? And should we do retrieval on a Wednesday? As if retrieval is a skill rather than just something you can do when you have the requisite background knowledge, understanding of text structure, vocabulary, syntax required to understand a given sentence. Um, so yeah, we shouldn't, we shouldn't, there's no point teaching those skills. It is worthwhile spending a little time developing habits. And in fact, I would say a lot of that habit development, things are like, you know, if you get to the end of a paragraph, summarize it. You know, if you think it's worth, it's at the end of a chapter, it's worth having a, a, a sentence summary in your head, particularly in a nonfiction text. Sorry, uh, yeah, particularly in a nonfiction text, it might be worth having summarizing. It's just, it's just as a habit. These are little things that you can teach in the moment through modeling. It doesn't have to be a specific set of lessons. Now it's worth noting that there is a large literature on the teaching of comprehension strategies. So I wouldn't want to put any teachers off the idea of saying, oh, actually I'm gonna teach them explicitly. We're gonna have a, a lesson every month where um, so that by the end of the year, we've got four or five weeks, sorry, by the end of their education, we've got four or five weeks of explicitly teaching these comprehension strategies. I don't think that's, a bad idea necessarily, just in my experience, I think that these strategies like rereading when you're not sure, summarizing at the end of a, of a paragraph, this sort of thing, these kind of bits of metacognition effectively for reading are things that you can just model in the process of reading. Beyond that, what should our teaching of comprehension look like? It doesn't need to be this attempt to describe teach discrete skills. It can just be the interaction with lots and lots of rich text with worthwhile discussion and questioning. I mean, it's, it's really interesting you say that because there are lots of products out there based around the model 
that you were sort of saying we should try and avoid when we're teaching reading. How, how do you think, how is it possible that we've gotten to that position? Because I remember when we last spoke about reading, you were talking about how there was a general consensus about the way we learn to read, particularly, you know, early on. Um, so is it a case that um, the market has chosen to go in a different direction because it's um, slightly more marketable direction or is, is it just a case of the field being considerably more advanced than our understanding of it? I don't know. How, how have we gotten to that point? I think it's both. Um, I don't think that most teachers that I have come across have had a particularly, and I count myself in that, have had a particularly good grounding on the um, research that does exist on the subject of reading in terms of their initial teacher training. And to an extent, I don't think that's necessarily purely the fault of initial teacher trainers. I think there's a lot to get in on a PGCE. Really, I think it comes down to schools prioritising that their teachers then learn this stuff. Maybe it's the case. I couldn't speak for what happens in initial teacher training because I've only really I've only experienced my own. But I can speak to an extent to what happens in schools from conversations with lots and lots and lots of people about their early career. There doesn't seem to be that much of a focus of supporting teachers to get the basics of um, reading research. Now, it's worth noting, just to make a little point here, um, I, I, I applied to speak at something recently without naming names, um, and, <laughs> and um, the title I was intended to go for was what every teacher needed to know about reading. And it was a 45 minute or so talk, or would be, um, and obviously it's a bit tongue in cheek because no teacher is going to get everything they need to know in 45 minutes. I absolutely do think that in 45 minutes you could get across more than most, more of the crucial bits and pieces with a suitable level of nuance than most teachers already have. That's the crucial thing. It isn't that you can teach them everything, but you can certainly make strides in the right direction um, in 45 minutes, which I think tells its own story. Going back to your point about specific products and where this comes from it's the same old story of schools looking for simple solutions to complex problems and most importantly it comes down to people wanting something that's nice and easy to explain to their teachers but also fits in with what they think is already the case relating to SATs you are pushing on open door with most senior leaders that I've met. If you say the way to boost reading outcomes is to do this thing that aligns with the particular kinds of questions that children are going to see in the SATs. That's really what it boils down to. I think there's also an element in which, again, my your mileage may vary, but a lot of the reading coordinators that I've come across have happened to work in key stage two rather than key stage one or in um, in reception and again I think there's a tendency if you're in key stage two to be looking upwards towards year six and thinking sat sat sats 
let's do something that looks like the SATs. And effectively, most of the products that are out there, or many of the most popular products, retrofit the way to teach reading and specifically reading comprehension from the types of questions that exist in the stats test. And it's not great, really. If I can use another silly analogy, it's a bit like noticing that marathon runners are all like the really successful marathon runners are the ones that are first to run through the finishing line tape. And so you, as a marathon runner, you think, well, I need to practice running through tape. It's a bit like that. Yeah, no, it's, it's amazing because um, you mentioned a paper earlier on from 1986, um, which means that paper is as old as me. Um, <laughs> um, and it, yeah, and the fact that, you know, when I saw your book, um, you know, months ago now, and I thought, this is going to be a fantastic read, you know, for many reasons, but because it's going to make everything that's really important about reading instruction really, really clear, you know, and I, I'm pretty sure you've, you've gone to great lengths to be really lean as well. So you've only included, you know, the, the information that is absolutely necessary and the exemplification that will best help, you know, leaders, teachers out. Um, and I, I really wish, you know, with, I'm not trying to push your book or anything because I think it sells itself. Um, but I, I could have done that, you know, 15 years ago. Um, you know, and I, I like the like the marathon runner <laughs> analogy. I've actually got a new analogy that we can work on towards the end of the show. Um, but the, but that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and I can see exactly how we can end up in that situation. Um, and I think I'm not entirely sure when this episode will go out. But I'm really looking forward to that talk you're going to do, um, if you do it. You know, I, I assume that you will be doing it um, on the on the fourth of September. Oh well, we'll see, we'll see. Um, just to note as well, because anyone who knows the reading research, who says, "Hang on a minute, he's made everything really clear," alarm bells will be going off because anyone who says this is the way to teach reading and it will work in all circumstances um, is someone who's read just enough of the research to get themselves into trouble. However, I do think that there are certain underlying principles that are good bets from what we can see from the current uh, mountain of reading research that allow us to make informed decisions. So I think rounding it off, Chris, in, in practical terms, what immediately applicable advice would you give to teachers to support their students' development? Um, and I'm thinking about myself, if in the future I'm back in the classroom and teaching reading after a 10-year hiatus, what, what advice are you going to give me? Now, I had two options with this. I thought, oh, I can narrow it down to just a couple of key things, like a really thoughtful podcast participant would do or I could indulge and reel off the long list of them and I'm going with the second because you know the way I am so I'm gonna yeah I'm gonna read a load and the ones that sound most pertinent to you dear listener um yeah take those so practical things that have worked for me so that's the caveat things that I found work for me um 
First thing is knowing that fluency is necessary Check and checking phonics and fluency um, using good assessments. In the case of fluency, that's likely to be a Diebell's assessment or something similar to that that can be found free online. When it comes to phonics, it's likely to be the assessment that relates to your phonics program, though there are good ones out there. The second thing we've already mentioned, less teaching of skills, more encountering and discussing worthwhile texts, less answering questions in writing as well. I don't, I wouldn't say get rid of writing in your reading lessons entirely. This can be a valuable way to understand thinking, can be a valuable assessment opportunity, but it shouldn't be taking up a significant chunk of your time. Most of your reading lessons should be about reading. Reading things and discussing texts should make up most of your reading time, however you organize your reading lessons. Um, it, I found it really useful having read a, um, a bit about a technique called questioning the author by um, uh, McCowan from Beck, McCowan and Kuchen fame. Um, she talks about um, priming children to know that they need to make sense of what's going on and that there's a responsibility on them to make sense by centering the author in your questions. So instead of saying, you know, what does this metaphor mean? Saying some, a simple change like, what did the author want to express with this metaphor? Showing that there's a bit of ambiguity in there, but also showing that, you know, the job's on you and the author may not have communicated this absolutely perfectly and you're gonna have to bridge that divide. Um, I'd say um, this one is one that I picked up a bit from um, Reading Reconsidered. Doug Lamont's book on the subject, which is aimed mainly at, uh, I would say, upper key stage two secondary school, but I think it does have value, which is to think about questions on the word, sentence and paragraph level as one of the ways of just making sure that you are asking a variety of questions. Uh, 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 something to just get you started is this idea of make sure you're you're thinking about questions and thinking about discussion on the word level, the sentence level, the paragraph level, and actually beyond that on the whole text level where appropriate. And also think about questions that establish meaning uh, and those that analyze meaning. Those that say, okay, what is this, what is the author trying to say here? And those that say, well, why do you think the author chose this? What, what would have happened if he chose or if she had chosen this instead? Um, so yeah, things that look at humor and authorial intent. Pick texts carefully. Not enough schools in my experience do this. You're looking for texts that do have a certain amount of variety, but you're looking for a certain quality of text, texts that um, allow for the opportunities for discussion that you're after. Yes, maybe you're teaching children about instructions and you want to read a recipe with them. Fine, they're going to learn something about the structure of that text, but it isn't great if you're looking to unpick other um, aspects of reading relating to authorial intent and metaphor and this sort of thing. I would also say in your reading lessons, take advantage of partner talk. Again, personal experience here. I'm not basing this on any particular reading research necessarily. This is just something I found works that works quite well in my reading lessons when I've done it, which is if I am going to ask children a question, giving them the chance to rehearse an answer effectively use think, pair, share is a great way to encourage discussion. You can go to children and say, what were you two talking about? 
rather than putting children like individually on the spot. I would say also don't be afraid to explain things. Don't be afraid to just say this word means this. For every, in my experience, the best reading lessons I've seen for every occasion where a teacher has said, what do you think this phrase might mean? There's been at least two or three where they've said this, this word means this. Here's a picture that shows you what this word means. It helps keep the pace of a lesson and often it's just the best way to get an idea across. Last couple, teach vocabulary when you encounter it. It's okay to introduce vocabulary before. Again, in my experience, children remember it a bit better if you wait until it arrives in a text, then you go, oh, this word that was in this sentence, it also means this, and you give it to them in child-friendly language. As with any other area of learning, model your thinking. If you get to the end of a paragraph and you think, oh, that that's gonna be tough going for them, that is a rough paragraph. Even if you've understood it perfectly, don't be afraid to just kind of model your thinking or your pretend thinking by saying, that was, that was a tricky paragraph. Let's read that again and see if there's any parts that we really struggled with. Just modeling this idea of setting a standard for coherence or comprehension monitoring is really valuable. Last couple of tips would really be about things that you can check out in order to take your understanding of reading comprehension um, a bit further. Kieran's already plugged my book on my behalf, so I won't add any more on that. I would check out the blogs of James Duran online. He's got some really interesting blogs. There's a couple that talk about a sequence that he goes through in teaching an English lesson um, relating to reading. I read that and thought, wow, uh, that is a really impressive sequence of teaching reading. It's worth checking out the book, Understanding and Teaching Reading Comprehension by Oak Hill Kane and Elbro. Once you've read that, look into comprehension strategies and the limitations of them, because I think they take a particular view on reading comprehension, but it's still an excellent book to check out. Subscribe to Timothy Shanahan's blog. He says really interesting things about reading all the time. Um, and also potentially, particularly working up a key stage to or maybe even secondary schools, if you're tuning in, I would consider um, Doug Lamov's um, Reading Reconsidered. I know it's Doug Lamov and a couple of other authors. I apologise to the other authors, because right now, off the top of my head, I can only remember um, that Doug Lamov is one of the authors. So, yeah, check that out. Excellent. Um, lots of great advice there um, that I think will be really useful, whatever stage of career that people might be in. So on that note, all that's left to say is thank you very much, Chris. Thanks for having me on again. And thank you very much to everyone for listening. We'll see you next time.